When you and I think about Bible times, I can't help but think about the city of Rome. I can't help but think about how massive Rome was, how magnificent Rome was, the world power uh, that it had gained. We think about Rome, we think about emperors such as Augustus, Tiberius, Nero, and many others, many who are uh, taught about and we learn about in school. You know, when I think about Rome, I think about their power. And you and I know that in order for them to have that power, behind that had to be a great army. There had to be hundreds of thousands of soldiers who were under the command of the emperor to, to take as much land as they could and to grow their empire. When I think about that army, I think about soldiers within that army, and you and I know that the name of one who was in command over a unit within what they called a Roman legion. A Roman legion had about 6,000 soldiers within it, and those 6,000 soldiers were then divided up into 10 cohorts. That's what they called them. Each, uh, each cohort was led by six different men who they called Centuria, which is where we gain the name Centurion. Each Centurion had under his command some 100 soldiers, which is why they gained that name Centurion. What I want to do this morning is I want to examine this specific account here in Matthew chapter 8, talking about this particular centurion. And I want to look at his life and see a particular characteristic that we can draw out of this passage and how we can make it applicable to you and I today. When you and I think about centurions, we know that they had to be individuals who were of high moral character. They had to have noble values in order to be a centurion. They had to be upstanding individuals. And in fact, in every single account within Scripture, within the New Testament, that we are to read about centurions, those characters and those morals are on display. They are there for us to see. In fact, when you look at Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7 is a mirror account of what happens here in Matthew chapter 8. In that particular chapter, the focus there is that centurion, and we find out that it's not said, but it is really implied that this particular centurion was someone who was a God-fearing man. He was someone who was much like Cornelius was back in Acts chapter 10. And so there's a lot that I want to pull from this particular passage of Scripture, and I hope that you're excited to join in in this study. When we look at Matthew chapter 8, when I think about Jesus as we begin here in this chapter, I can't help but think about the many different things that we know Jesus to be. We know that Jesus was a teacher. We know that Jesus was a friend. We know that Jesus was Lord. And there's so many other ways that we describe Jesus Christ while He was here on this earth. And yet one of the things that our Lord is known for is something that no one else on this earth has ever been able to do or ever will be able to do, and that is to be a healer. When you get to Matthew chapter 8, when you begin reading in this particular passage, we see Jesus beginning here by healing what we call and what is called a leper. You remember back in that day, lepers were individuals who were cast out. They were not wanted. They were considered unclean and they were put away from the camp. They were put away from the people because nobody wanted to be around them. And yet you and I know that our Lord has showed no partiality in that when it came to who He was healing. In fact, in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 8, the Bible tells us that Jesus reached out His hand and He touched this particular individual. Jesus did what was unthinkable. Touching someone who was unclean, touching someone who carried this great disease, touching someone who nobody else wanted to be around, and yet it didn't matter to Him, and He healed that man. 
When you get to verse 5, we find out that Jesus and his company, they have come to this place called Capernaum. Capernaum was this thriving shore town here on the Sea of Galilee. It was home to the Apostle Peter. It was a sort of a home base for Jesus and his ministry. We read a lot about Capernaum within the New Testament, within the Gospel accounts, and it's because that is where Jesus and most of his ministry was focused on there during those three years here on, well, he was here on this earth. But it's within this particular occasion that Jesus finds Himself being approached by this centurion. We remember a centurion was somewhat of a professional soldier. Not professional in the means that you and I think of like a professional athlete, but he was someone who was professional in his work base and that it wasn't entertainment, but that he knew that he was putting his life on the line every single day and it was all for the cause of Rome. What made Centurion stand out from all of the other commanding officers, from all of the other individuals who were in charge, who had some form of authority, was that Centurions always fought with their men. Too many times we read, or not too many times, but oftentimes when we read in history, we read about commanders, people who had authority within army settings, and oftentimes they stood on the hill and they commanded their soldiers. They would say, you go fight there and we're going to stand back and we're going to watch, not centurions. They were in the mix of everything that was going on. Again, a testament to their upstanding character and their morals. And when Jesus comes into Capernaum, this centurion immediately comes up to Jesus. And he noticed in verse 6 what he says. He says, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed. He is dreadfully tormented. There's a lot of things I think about when I read these few verses, yeah, these few words here. I find it interesting that he calls Jesus Lord. Somewhat of a recognition, I suppose, of who Jesus was. Of the power that Jesus held. Certainly, He had to have heard of Jesus. He had to have known of Jesus and His teachings. Of Jesus and His power. Of Jesus and His healing. Word had gotten around. Jesus was no stranger to many people. That's why the centurion came up to Him in the first place. He knew who Jesus was. He knew His reputation. He knew what Jesus could do for Him and for this particular servant. And so there's recognition of Jesus, of the power, the authority that Jesus had and what Jesus was able to do. But not only that, but we also see His concern not for His child, not for His parents, not for His grandparents, not for a friend, but it's concern for His servant. Concern for a slave. In Luke chapter 7, it's translated into that word doulos. That word that literally means someone who was enslaved, someone who was working for someone else. Someone who was low on the totem pole when it came to rank and position and authority and power. And yet we see the good heart of this centurion, don't we? By his care for his people, regardless of who they were and the job that they held. He comes to Jesus and he says, I have a problem. His servant, apparently this person for whom he cared greatly, is paralyzed. He's dreadfully tormented. When you read other uh, other translations, it talks about the fact that he was racked with pain. He was someone who was in great discomfort. He was not in a state of life, in a state of health, where he wanted to be. And there seems to be no cure whatsoever. And so this centurion, seemingly a God-fearing man, he's heard of Jesus. He knows what Jesus can do. And so he goes to Jesus and basically he says, Lord, please heal my servant. Lord, please make him well because there's no cure. Nobody can do anything. But I know that You can. I know that You, as Jesus, are able to heal my servant. Notice the next couple of verses. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy that You should come under my roof. 
but only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. You know, there's so many intriguing things. When I look at this particular passage of Scripture, first is the fact that Jesus would even heal this man, much less carry on a conversation with this particular centurion. Some people have translated or interpreted, uh, interpreted excuse me, Jesus and His phrase here, and they say basically Jesus was asking a question. It was almost as if Jesus was saying, am I to go and heal this man? In other words, people think that Jesus may have been saying that I am a Jew, And you as a Gentile are inviting me into your home. It was against tradition. It was against customs. Jews and Gentiles didn't do that. Jews and Gentiles didn't mix. They didn't enjoy one another's company. And yet here you have a Gentile or centurion going to Jesus, the teacher, the healer, and saying, please come heal my servant. It was against their customs. However, I do find it, I guess, somewhat difficult to think that Jesus, knowing who He was, would even hesitate. That Jesus would even hesitate to have an opportunity to heal and to show the power of Almighty God. Because you remember, you go to the very beginning of the chapter, what's Jesus doing? He's going to a place where nobody else would go. He's going and healing a man that nobody else would talk to. He's doing what most people considered unclean and that they didn't want to do. Jesus did what nobody else desired to do. Jesus wouldn't hesitate to go to the house of a Gentile. Jesus wouldn't hesitate to carry on a conversation with the woman at the well who was a Samaritan. Jesus did not discriminate against the people who wanted His healing. But they had to be people who had faith. And that's the underlying theme that we see within Matthew chapter 8, looking at this particular centurion. The faith that he had. When I think about how this centurion responds to Jesus, how he was full of humility, how he was full of recognition of who Jesus was and what Jesus was able to do. He says, Lord, you can't come into my house. I'm not worthy. He says, I don't want you to come under my roof. I don't want you to walk through my door because I understand who I am. He says, I'm so lowly. I am so little. I am so far beneath Jesus, who you are, the power that you hold, the authority that God has given you, that I don't even think you should come into my house where I live. Remember, he's, according to Luke chapter 7, more than likely a God-fearing man. He knew the customs and the traditions. He knew that by asking Jesus to come would be making Jesus have to make a choice between offending the Jews and their customs or to ignore a person who needed his healing. So what does the centurion do? It's almost like he tries to offer a solution, doesn't he? He says, I'm not going to make you offend the Jews, but I'm not also going to make you have to ignore this sick person. He says, I have faith in knowing what you are able to do for me and this this servant. And he says, look, you don't even have to come to my house. He says, Jesus, Lord, you don't even have to come to where I need you to be in this servant. Just speak the word. Just speak the word, say that it's going to happen, and I know that it will happen. Even though this centurion believed himself to be unworthy to have Jesus come into his own house, he still had enough faith in Jesus to believe that he could heal his centurion without ever even having to touch him. You see, he understood the authority of Jesus, didn't he? He knew about the authority, and he knew what it meant to have people under him. 
He himself was a man who had soldiers underneath him. He had soldiers above him. He had the emperor above everybody. He knew what authority was. He knew what it meant to have authority and to be underneath authority. He was used to saying, go, come and do. And all of those people underneath him doing just that. And he equates the authority of Jesus to that and the power that he gained from God in understanding Jesus. I know a little bit about authority. I know a little bit about what you have. And so how does Jesus respond? Jesus says, I'm truly amazed. I'm truly shocked at the faith of this particular centurion. The Bible says that he marvels at him. This word used to describe how Jesus reacts to this centurion here and the faith that he sees, the faith that this centurion possesses is the exact same word in the Greek language. If you go to all the accounts where the Bible talks about the crowds and the multitudes listening to Jesus and then marveling at the knowledge and the authority that Jesus had, it's the same word that's used to describe how Jesus feels when it comes to the faith of this Gentile centurion. Simply astounded. Shocked at the faith that this man has. I think it's interesting that this is pointed out. Because I think it shows to us a side of Jesus I think that we so often forget when we look at our Savior. That being His human side. I think so many times we study Jesus and we study about His deity. We study about Him being part of the Godhead, and rightly so because that's what He is first and foremost. And yet, I think sometimes we forget about the fact that Jesus came to earth, became man, and experienced all of the emotions that you and I have also experienced. He certainly is God, was God, but certainly He was man while He was here on this earth. Jesus portrayed while He was here on this earth every characteristic, every emotion that you and I can go through. That's what makes Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 so profound and that He knows every temptation that we've ever been through. Jesus Christ knows us. He knows what it feels like to be human. He knows what it feels like to be man. And I think perhaps we see a little bit of that here in the fact that He is shocked. He's astounded at the way the faith of this Gentile is showed. He's amazed. He's shocked. Only two times in Scripture does Jesus ever describe someone having so great a faith. Right here in Matthew chapter 8, talking about the centurion. And then you go a few chapters later, Matthew chapter 15, he describes the Canaanite woman. But you know what's interesting? When you look at these two individuals, the centurion and this woman here in these two passages of Scripture, there's one thing that they share in common. And that is the fact that they are both Gentiles. Jesus, the only two times in Scripture, talking about people who have great faith, are not even Jewish. They're Gentiles. Sometimes I can't help but wonder, when I think about us today as 21st century Christians, I can't help but wonder if we sometimes become like the Jews. That in sometimes, perhaps in our mindset, you and I think that we are the only ones who should have a chance at the Gospel. I think sometimes maybe we get a little bit entitled in our thinking and in our mindset, and that because you and I have the opportunity to hear the Gospel day in and day out, we take it for granted and we don't think about the Gospel as a whole and who it's for. You and I, whenever we get to hear the Gospel, whenever we come into an assembly to worship, whenever we have an opportunity to praise and to worship and to glorify God, you and I ought to feel the deepest gratitude and the deepest awe that we could ever muster 
for the fact that we even have the opportunity to do that. The Jews took for granted what God had done for them. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Notice this. To everyone who believes, but who to go to first? To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Yes, it's for everyone. Jews, you got the opportunity first, but for some reason in their thinking, the Jews had such a hard time with understanding that the gospel was for everyone else. You read about it in Acts chapter 13. You remember when they were there in the synagogues, Paul came to teach to them, and the whole multitude was there, Jew and Gentile. And the Jews were happy, they were excited to hear, but then they saw the Gentiles coming, and they were upset. They got angry, they got irate, they got so mad to the point to where they were blinded by their own hatred for the Gentiles, that they began to refuse the things that Paul was teaching them. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is for all. Jew and Gentile, Galatians chapter 3 tells us that. It's for every single person. When we look at this centurion, this Gentile, we think about the great faith that he had in Jesus Christ. That even though this Gentile, this centurion, was some distance away from where his servant was, where Jesus was some distance away from where this servant was, he knew, Jesus, all you have to do is say the word. All you have to do is say one word and you'll heal my servant. He had faith in Jesus' authority. He had faith in Jesus' power. He had faith in what Jesus was able to do and in His healing. That word faith that Jesus describes this centurion of having such a great amount of is the exact same word that Jesus used later on in this chapter when He's talking to His own disciples. You remember later on in this chapter, in Matthew chapter 8, they're in the boat on the water. And you remember the storm came, the waves overtook that boat, and the disciples run to Jesus and they say, Jesus, save us for we are perishing. And Jesus wakes up, He calms the sea, and then He looks at them and what does He say? He says, oh you of little faith. That same word that He used to describe the centurion. Except when he does it, it's in two different contexts. He's talking about Jews, disciples, people who were with him in his ministry, having such a little faith. But then you look at this Gentile, this centurion, someone who didn't walk with Jesus, yet who had an amount of faith that was so much greater that he hadn't even seen it in Israel before. And so Jesus heals this servant. You know, it's not the case that every time a healing occurs, that faith is also involved. We can read about that in other different accounts. However, because of the astounding faith that this particular centurion had, this particular Gentile had, that he was healed that very moment, just like that. In fact, some other translations say he was healed within the hour. Jesus was shocked, amazed at the faith of this particular centurion. You and I should want to be more like this centurion. When it comes to our Christian walk, when it comes to you and I and our faith and the foundation upon which we plant ourselves, we should want to become more and more like this centurion. Four things that I want to very quickly point out from this and then we'll offer the Lord's invitation. Here's number one. When we think about the centurion, you and I should want to recognize the authority of Jesus. We should want to recognize the authority of Jesus. You know, before anything happened, this centurion approaches Jesus with humbleness, humility, reverence, and respect. 
He calls Jesus Lord. He is showcasing that He has full understanding of Jesus. He knows who Jesus was. He knows who Jesus was able, what Jesus was able to do. And before He even makes a request, before He even goes to Jesus and says, I need you to help me with this problem that I have, He shows Him the respect and the reverence that Jesus deserved. May you and I as Christians today never ever forget who God truly is. May we never forget who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. I think far too often we get what they might say too big for our britches, don't we? And sometimes I think we begin to think that we ourselves offer our own selves all the answers to life's problems. We begin to look at ourselves and our own wisdom and our own knowledge and think, I've got all the answers to every single situation that I find myself in in life. And yet you and I know that it was the Apostle Paul who said in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19, and my God, my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We must recognize the authority of Jesus. Here's number two. You and I need, if we want to be more like this centurion, we need to love the people around us. I need to love the people around me. One of the most remarkable things I think that we can pull from this and that we look at the centurion is his attitude towards his servant who was sick. You remember a centurion was a soldier who had other soldiers underneath him. He had authority. He had people who were underneath him, people who answered to him. And yet, when it came to his servant, when it came to the people around him, he didn't think that he was too high or too holy or too magnificent for his servant to be so unworthy of his own care. I want to be able to look at people around me, regardless of who they are, where they come from, what their age is, what their job might be, how our world sees them. I want to look at people the way that I'm supposed to. That is, looking at individuals the way that God sees people. The way that you and I should look at people is seeing individuals as a person that Jesus died for. As a soul that God created. As someone who is no more worthy than I am. Someone who is no more unworthy of the Gospel. Someone who is no more unworthy of the grace of God than I am. And yet, just as I have the opportunity to come into contact with the blood of Jesus, just as I have the opportunity to accept the grace of God, so does every single person around me. Here's number three. You and I have to remember, if we want to be more like this centurion, I have to remember who I am. I have to remember who I am. Notice this. The centurion makes a statement that is profound. One that, truth be told, we should all be uttering every single time we approach Almighty God because what does he say in verse 8? He says, Lord, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy. Within his recognition and of the power and the authority that Jesus had, he also realized where he was on the totem pole, so to speak, when it came to God. Just as that servant that he cared for, in terms of rank, fell at the bottom, he understood that he as a human fell at the bottom when it came to who God was. He was willing to swallow his pride. He was willing to swallow his ego to put all of those things aside, even though he knew what it meant to have authority to see how truly unworthy he was because he remembered who he was. Number four, if I want to be like this centurion, I have to have an unwavering faith. 
If I want to be like this centurion, I have to have an unwavering faith. This centurion that we read about here in Matthew chapter 8 is a prime example of someone who was putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Someone who had full confidence in Jesus Christ, full confidence in His power, in His authority, in His healing, and trust that Jesus was going to follow through with what He told him. That all Jesus had to do was speak the Word. A faith so great that it wasn't even found among those in Israel. You and I know that we have hope today. We have a promise of heaven today. But we also know that in order to gain that reward, we have to have faith. We have to be able to look at God. We have to be able to look at Jesus. We have to be able to look at His Word and understand that if we want to have that hope of heaven, if we want to have that reward, then we have to have a faith in Jesus Christ. A trust in Him. And knowing that He's going to follow through with His promises. He's going to love us just as He said that He would. And that one day He's going to come back. And that should we be found faithful in His sight, we're going to go on to our reward. I hope you and I become more like this centurion. That when we look at who we are, when we look at who Jesus is, when we look at the people around us, we understand God is number one. You and I fall everywhere else beneath that. But you and I are no more worthy than the people around us. When we look at Jesus Christ and what He has done for us, we can give great thanks. We can showcase our faith in Him for what He has done by submitting to His will, by putting his, Him on in baptism. We look at the cross of Christ and we see what Jesus has done for us, shedding His blood, knowing that that water behind us, when we are baptized into it, is a representation of that shed blood of Jesus. Washing away our sins, allowing us to be able to go on as New Testament Christians knowing that we're on our way to heaven. That's your case this morning. If you haven't put Christ on in baptism, but you want to, you know that you can do that this morning. Maybe you're here and maybe you are a Christian. Maybe your faith is not what it should be. Maybe you're lacking faith in God. You're lacking faith in His Son. Maybe you're beginning to doubt. Maybe your faith is beginning to waver. You're shaken and you don't know what to do. Know that you can always come back to Him. You can pray to Him. You can ask for forgiveness of those sins in your life that you need to be forgiven of. And you can ask for encouragement. You can ask for prayers. You can ask for strength. And know that God will give those things to you and know that your family here at East Hill will do the same as, they, as God will. They will forgive you. They will uphold you. They will do all that they can to help you in any way that they are able to. If you have a need this morning, won't you come? Together we stand and as we sing.